I'm Paul Shari, Senior Fellow here at the Center for New American Security, and we have another episode in our drone podcast series. I'm here with Michael Horwitz, Associate Professor from the University of Pennsylvania and an Adjunct Senior Fellow here at CNAS. We're also joined by Dan Gettinger, Co-Director of the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College, and my colleague Alexandra Sander, Research Associate with the Technology and National Security Program here at CNAS. Thanks, everyone, for being here. So I want to start, Dan, by turning to you and asking you about what we're seeing in terms of patterns of drone proliferation as this technology is really exploding on the world stage. You're spending a lot of time mapping this, looking at um, what countries are sending abroad. What stands out to you as the most significant trends in drone proliferation? One of the most stark trends in proliferation is the exports of Chinese uh, armed systems, um, like the Wing Loon and also the CH-4, the Kai Hong-4. Um, and this trend has really accelerated in the past year. Um, in October 2015, we saw one of the first drone strikes by a Chinese drone, uh, which took place by uh, in Iraq. It was operated by the Iraqi Air Force. Um, and since then, this proliferation of systems has really accelerated to uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Egypt. Um, so that's probably one of the most stark examples of proliferation that we've seen in the past year. So, uh, Dan, as you well know, all armed drones are not created equal. Um, we've seen ISIS using small commercial drones and putting explosives on them. Walk me through um, some of these Chinese drones that you mentioned. What are their capabilities? What are they equivalent to? How should we think about um, what these assets look like? Well, in terms of size, uh, these drones are like the Wing Loon and the CH-4 are equivalent to the U.S. Predator drone. Um, and in terms of payload and uh, range, they, they are also equivalent. The big difference is in terms of um, uh, the uh, distance at which they're be able to be operated. So the U.S. can obviously operate these our, our drones at a large, you know, many thousands of miles. Uh, the Chinese are really limited to a couple hundred kilometers, um, but that also is changing. They're improving their satellite communications capabilities. And so in the future, what we'll be watching is that improvement in technology and capability in terms of uh, remote operation of these systems. One of the, um, the concerns that people have raised when looking at proliferation is all of the things on the back end of drones to make them work in the U.S. system, um, the processing and exploiting and dissemination of intel in order to really make them an effective military tool. Do we have any insight into how other countries are actually using them? Are they effectively employing them? Are they simply um, there for show to say, well, now, look, we have the armed drones too? What's the effect? Yeah, I think there, um, there's not too much information out there. There is a lot of variation. Uh, Iraq, pretty soon after they launched their first drone strike, they launched another drone strike that killed a bunch of friendlies uh, in Iraq. So um, that was, um, you know, that that's an example of how um, perhaps these systems may not have, you know, these operators may not have the same training as the U.S. Uh, operators, and that, you know, that um, ISR system may not be as cohesive as the United States. Um, but uh, with the case of the UAE and um, Saudi Arabia and other use cases, it's still the early days in terms of armed drone uh, use. And um, so we'll be watching that as well. Mike, you've written a book on the diffusion of military technology. How does um, what we're seeing with drones uh, relate to what you've seen historically in other cases? And how do the historical cases inform what we should look for going forward? 
drones historically look like a lot of regular conventional military technologies. I think the the instinct that some people had due to what seemed like a brief American monopoly on drones made people think of drones as special weapon technologies, something like weapons of mass destruction or, or, or aircraft carriers or something like that. But really, I mean, with in a world where 16 countries have drones and armed drones and about, and many of them acquired them in the last few years, as, as Dan said, the, this matches up much more closely with something like the diffusion of fighter aircraft or, or tanks than it does with something like weapons of mass destruction. Does that, so if that's the model, fighter aircraft and tanks, does that look forward then to a future where everyone will have these assets? I think it's likely over the next decade that any country that wants uh, to have an armed drone will have one. The capabilities of those drones will vary, and specifically whether countries have the capacity to operate them over the horizon or just in their immediate security environment. But for most countries, their security needs are local rather than global. Most countries don't need the global reach of the United States. And so if you're Nigeria and you acquire a, an armed drone from China and you can only operate it out to 100 miles, that's probably okay for the security requirements that the Nigerians are using it for, which is mostly going after or almost exclusively going after Boko Haram. That's such a critical point. Um, often in some of the discourse about how other countries will use drones, I see a lot of mirroring of country, imagining other countries and non-state groups using them the way the U.S. would use them. But as you point out, um, for most countries, they don't necessarily have security interests all the way around the globe the way the United States might. Their most important security interests are very local. Alexandra, what stands out to you as some of the most significant things you're seeing in terms of transient proliferation and use of drones as more actors get a hold of them? I think for me, what I'm looking at is how use cases are going to shape future proliferation. So in terms of what Mike was saying for the Nigerian case, uh, we're not going to be seeing these other countries or other actors necessarily emulating uh, U.S. counterterrorism operations with drones. And I think beyond just military applications, we should also be thinking about um, maybe other surveillance applications. For example, Indonesia's drone development program is primarily focused on maritime surveillance. So there's a lot more use cases that's going to shape proliferation beyond just thinking about targeted strikes. So one of the things that we've explored repeatedly during the last two years during our Proliferated Drones project is that drones captures many different kinds of things. There are small, commercially available systems. Uh, DJI now has a new under $500 quadcopter that is, has a lot of autonomy, um, very impressive. Um, those things can be you know, weaponized and used for military purposes. There are large uh, unarmed surveillance aircraft like a Global Hawk. There are strike aircraft. There are things that are satellite-enabled, as you mentioned, Mike, and things that are not. Of these kinds of capabilities and, and trends, and they're all proliferating at different rates, what stands out to you guys as the things that are most important? What should we be paying attention to, um, and maybe what is less significant? I mean, the, the thing that I'm uh, waiting to see, and in waiting in a way that, that doesn't make me happy, actually, building on what Alexandra said, is for uh, autocratic regimes to start using drones in more significant ways for con surveillance, control, and even repression of their domestic populations. Uh, autocratic regimes 
uh, I think view drones is very attractive because it can they can allow the regime to centralize the use of force and potentially you know skinny down the number of people that they need to both conduct surveillance on on populations they view as suspect and even to conduct strikes or engage in, in repression activities. And so I think one of the things that we could see develop over the next few years is the growing use of drones by autocratic regimes for domestic repression purposes rather than for what, what we would think about as counterterrorism. Well, we already have seen, right, countries use drones for um, strikes within their own territories. Iraq, Israel, Nigeria, Pakistan, Turkey. And, and so some of that started to already occur, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely, and I and I think the what we what we have not really seen yet is a an autocrat in a in a Mubarak into here square kind of scenario utilize drones rather than soldiers on the ground to try to control crowds or to try to you know try to disperse crowds to try to fire on crowds, uh, but we we definitely have already seen a growing use of of armed drones for uh, in-country strikes by by several countries, um, many of them not the most democratic in the world. Thinking again sort of beyond strikes, I know one of the things that came out of the war game we hosted a, a little while ago was using drone surveillance and video capability uh, as a tool to control a narrative, uh, using that video like direct to YouTube or whatever the platform might be, uh, gives a little bit more credence to whatever story you're trying to shape in a conflict. Well, that's such an important distinction because we often think about drones and immediately then drone strikes, but this idea that they're really just a persistent aerial platform that can be used for so many different types of things. Right. Yeah, I think um, an interesting exercise to, to do when thinking about proliferation is to compare the drones that were used in Afghanistan and the drones that were being are being used in Syria and Iraq today. Um, so if you look at Afghanistan, almost all the drones used by NATO partners were U.S. or Israeli military drones. You know, And now today in Syria and Iraq, we have drones made in Iran, drones made in Turkey, drones made in Russia, and in addition to all the U.S. and Israeli drone systems that um, were you know, proliferated before uh, Syria and Iraq. And then as well, we have this carryover of consumer drone technology into the military sphere uh, that we haven't really seen in a significant way before. I mean, we had Ukraine, but before Ukraine and Syria and Iraq. Um, so that's another, I think that's a very interesting uh, development that's really taken up, really accelerated in the past year. So not just um, have the, the drones themselves become democratized, the technology, but also the actors who are doing the proliferating. Yeah. That's also become a more diverse set of, of actors, not just the U.S. and Israel. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the war game, you know, we uh, hypothesized using drones, uh, <laughs> consumer drones, in a whole range of ways, um, you know, as insurgents and as state actors. Um, and in a way, that that uh, that hypothesis that you know that um, that uh, that get war gaming was is playing out now in reality in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere in the world. How big of a player is China on this scene? Over 90% of armed drone transfers abroad have come from China. How significant is their influence in terms of shaping patterns of proliferation? I mean, I think not only on the armed drone level, but 
DJI, a Chinese drone manufacturer, is the biggest drone manufacturer in the world. I mean, they're dominating the consumer drone market, and that shows no signs of going away. Um, so, uh, you know, whether we're talking about consumer drones here domestically or, you know, battlefield uses of, of DJI Phantoms and other consumer drones, um, I think China is, is a huge player in, in the proliferation and will have a massive effect on, on, uh, on how this technology diffuses and is adopted by state and non-state actors. Alexandra, you mentioned earlier the war game that we'd hosted, um, examining what happens when actors get their hands on drones. What else should we anticipate as we see more state and non-state groups have access to this technology? Well, there's a couple of different reasons why groups might acquire drones. Uh, the reason that the United States is using them is as a force multiplier. Uh, it's a tool that allows us uh, to be more effective when it's integrated with the capabilities and platforms we're already using. Uh, with smaller powers, you might see them using drones as a replacement for traditional uh, inhabited aircraft. Uh, they could also be acquired as um, a signifier of advancement, uh, whereas, again, for a United States or a major power use case, acquisition of drones may not represent the same leap ahead in capabilities that it would for a non-state actor or a smaller power. Mike, what drives proliferation of military technology, and then what, what holds it back? Is it, is it simply business interests? Is it foreign policy? Do What kinds of considerations affect um, when countries are willing to transfer abroad and when they're not, and when countries seek this technology and when they don't? I think generally countries seek technology for the reasons that you might imagine, which is to you know, improve, the, improve their security, whether, they think, whether they're thinking about their security as the acquisition of technology to protect themselves from domestic opponents or to protect themselves from uh, international opponents. And what, what can hold them back are a lack of resources, which is, is less of a constraint in the drone case because the, the unit cost is often uh, fairly low. Another thing that can hold them back is lack of human capital. But one of the issues surrounding drones is as the, as the sort of sub $500 you know, phantom with a bit of autonomy built in illustrates, the uh, barriers to entry for operation, the technical barriers to entry for operation are dropping. And uh, a third thing that can hold them back is uh, sort of technical operational capacity in terms of ISR integration. And I think that barrier in this case is likely to remain uh, for a while when it comes to you know, more global operations. But, it, but again, most countries don't need to, don't need to do that. And for, for exporters, I think a, a key consideration is often whether they think that by withholding the export of the technology, it will, they can retain a, some kind of military advantage. You don't want to be in a situation where you're exporting your best stuff and then all of a sudden everybody has it or copies it and you're at a disadvantage on the battlefield. The challenge uh, with drone proliferation, as Alexander and Dan have, have indicated, is that a lot of countries are, are producing and acquiring this technology, either, either uh, directly exporting the way that China is, uh, modifying commercial variants the way that, that ISIS is. And so in a world where there are a lot of suppliers, uh, both commercial and military, there, there, there almost is no bottle to sort of put the genie back in anymore. A lot of folks might look at um, U.S. use of drones and drone strikes and then imagine to a world where everyone has drones and, and see that with some trepidation, regardless of how you feel about U.S. policy. Um, if everyone has access and everyone's conducting extraterrestrial strikes, that, 
that changes the international dynamics quite a bit. Is there any stopping this tidal wave of drones? Is there any slowing it, any containing it, any shaping it? I mean, I think the if you're if you're worried about worst case scenarios, the good news is that uh, today's drones are, are really not that capable in the grand scheme of things compared to other military technologies. They're they're slow. They're generally not stealthy. They uh, carry only very limited munitions. I mean, there's a reason why U.S. drone strikes happen in countries that don't have sophisticated air defenses or have turned those air defenses off. Uh, it's because current gen- even advanced current generation American drones aren't survivable against even modest air defense networks. So I think the, you know, the, the concern that you know, the drones will be buzzing around, firing against everybody around the world, misses the sort of inherent limitations of this generation of even advanced drone technology, at least, which will place a, place a significant constraint on their operations. And when you're talking about arms control, there's this reaction of wanting to focus on supply-side controls, which, given the way drones are proliferating and the size of commercial uh, contributions to this market, I don't think is going to be effective going to the future. So focusing more on sort of demand-side type arms control efforts in terms of talking more about norms of use, promulgating these operational concepts that are more in line with U.S. interests and the interests of U.S. partners and allies uh, could be more effective going into the future. I'll be interested to watch the role of private industry in limiting drone proliferation. Um, you know, last couple months ago, or la- last month, we saw DJI introduce geofencing in their drones uh, in Syria and Iraq. Um, I was a little confused about that because, uh, of course, the Iraqi Federal Police also operate DJI drones, and in the FY18 budget, the U.S. is going to buy a whole bunch of quadcopters for uh, Iraqi um, or for the counter-ISIS fight. So I'm not sure if those are DJI drones, but you know, it's an interesting question: How do you, uh, you know, how do you limit drone proliferation to the bad actors, but still be able to outfit your, outfit the friendly actors with uh, with that capability? That's so interesting. Could you talk maybe just briefly about what geofencing is, in case some listeners don't know well, with that? Yeah, geofencing is a. It's basically introduced by a software update. It's it prevents the drone from crossing a, a GPS boundary, um, and so it's it's been introduced in the United States uh, significantly around airports and sensitive sites. Um, basically, it prevents the DJI drone from flying where it's not supposed to, um, and once that the G, uh, drone hits that that boundary, it basically just comes to the ground. Um, so, uh, but this is really the first time that it's been introduced on such a wide scale in Iraq and Syria, um, and and of, of course in, in a conflict zone. Uh, you know, so we'll be interested to see how that develops as well. So the idea being that the fellow who got drunk and crashed his drone on the White House lawn a couple of years ago that that couldn't happen in the future. Exactly. Yeah, and you know there have been a lot of people who say, well, you know, you could just not install the update, or you could buy a drone from somebody else, uh, or you know there are ways to get around the geofencing, um, apparently. Uh, but um, you know, it's still a move that private industry is taking in response to the proliferation of this consumer drone technology on the battlefield, um, and how that move develops is remains to be seen. I think another way to think about it, though, is it's it's not just battlefield. I think it's commercial industry trying to smartly get ahead of potential regulations. I, I suspect the hope for for a company like DJI, DJI is that by introducing geofencing, they make it less likely that varieties of countries introduce regulations that would force them to do even more restrictive things. So I think there's a market there's a there's a domestic regulation protection component to it as well as a, a, a battlefield sort of military use component of it. 
Yeah, it's not a particularly good look for DJI to see their drones popping up in the hands of you know all these uh, of ISIS and all these other groups, and it will be a, definitely not a very good look to see them being used you know in a domestic situation, which we haven't seen yet. Um, but uh, you know that remains to, it's a possibility. Yeah, that's certainly marketing you don't need. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there any other comments you guys want to make? Anything else to add in? Questions I should tee you up with. Anything else on this topic? Do we want to bring up the proliferation of software versus oh, airframe yeah. point? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, I just keep going and go edit things. Yep. All right. Um, Alexandra, what do you see as the role of software versus hardware in terms of looking at how this technology proliferates? Well, when you're talking about what makes a drone a drone, it's really the software. That's where autonomy comes from. So when you're thinking about proliferation going forward, looking specifically at specifications for an airframe may not be the right mindset thinking more about how the software might spread, what the capabilities the software is going to yield for new drones is going to need to be the focus. And again, bringing up the arms control point, we don't really know how to do this with software yet. Everything uh, that's our past experience has to do with limiting hardware, limiting the spread of particular payloads. So software is a completely different ballgame for us, and it's something that's going to spread more quickly, uh, especially with the commercial sector's developments. That's such a significant challenge because all of our tools for thinking of proliferation really tend to focus on hardware, right? We look at the payload, we look at the range of systems, we don't necessarily think about their autonomy, and it's harder to see, right, also what, how autonomous is it? Um, and it's also that's a place where the commercial side is, is leading, as you say. I mean, you can buy a, a, a DJI drone for under $500 that has more autonomy than an Air Force Reaper drone. Yeah, and the, the commercial sector has a huge incentive to make operation for consumers as easy as possible. Dan was talking about geofencing. Uh, beyond security concerns, it's a way to limit the consequences of operator error. Uh, DJ also just released a new, uh, quite small drone, I forget the name of it, but they've introduced gesture controls. So you're not necessarily yeah. using a joystick, but you're using hand motions to uh, direct your drone. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty neat, pretty neat. Um, how, I mean, I had a question and I lost it uh, <laughs> <laughs> on this topic. Um, you know, what's, I guess what's interesting to me about thinking about software versus hardware is that the cost scales differently. So when you think about the limitations of different actors, um, nation states are always going to have more resources at their disposal to buy larger drones, more capable drones, larger numbers of them. But the cost for automation doesn't scale the same way that it does for hardware, right? You know, when you buy another drone, you got to pay for the physical hardware every single time you produce it. Um, and so the bigger they are, more expensive they are. But once you've invested in the automation, it can be costlessly replicated across drones. And so you can see these low-cost drones that have high degrees of autonomy. Um, how does that change how we, what we should expect when we see different actors get a hold of these systems? 
Well, one of the things I know you've brought up in your past uh, research policies applique kits, uh, using software in existing manned systems to make them capable of operating uh, without a human in the cockpit. So that further decreases the cost of hardware going forward if this type of software proliferates. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess I should just wrap it up. Um, yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks, everybody. That's been um, a, a really wonderful overview of some of the patterns we're seeing of proliferation. Thanks, thanks for coming today. Thank you. Thanks for Thank having us. You.